Well, I want to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. We'll continue uh, with our teaching time together this morning. My name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. Um, I talked a little bit, you guys, uh, if you've uh, uh, interacted with me a little bit before, you know I spent my teen years in Ontario and then I moved out to BC. And one thing that uh, perplexed me when I moved out to BC was the amount of protests that happened in the province of BC. Like everyone was, seemed to be from a distance when I lived in Ontario, protesting everything all the time. And uh, then I moved out to BC, and now it's kind of like, it's probably about the same amount of protests happen, but I'm like, oh, whatever, somebody's protesting something. I've just become immune to how many protests are ongoing in our province at any one time. But if you follow local or regional news, you know that on Monday, this last Monday, uh, there were two protests, two rallies being held that made the news. One was in Victoria on the grounds of the legislature, and another one was this one that's in this picture down at the foot of the Canby Street Bridge outside of the offices of the BC Teachers Federation. So at each one of those rallies, there were two groups on uh, opposing each other, right, on each side of the issue. And they were, there was a group there that was protesting against what is known as SOGI 123, uh, which is a curricular resource for educators. And SOGI stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. And the other group was there to protest those who were protesting. So this is also common. But what interests me at protests is the signs. Like what you're going to actually distill your message to and get it onto a poster board is always interesting to me. At the legislature protest, actually two people got arrested because they went over to the other side and stole the signs from the people and then the police had to intervene and they were arrested for public mischief. Uh, and the anti-SOGI123 crowd was holding up signs that read, parents have rights and don't mess with our children. But I thought, well, you know, either in this discussion, either side could hold up that sign. But there was another sign, it was a hand-drawn sign that caught my attention. And it said simply, God created man and woman. And if you uh, get your local paper here in Langley, in the Times, there was an editorial on Friday about this. And in the editorial comments, the editor asks the question, just reflecting on this debate, and says, the reason that these people were gathered is unclear to me. Here's the quote. They seem to believe that because society has in the past promoted and accepted two genders, that's all there should be now and forevermore. If there is more to their argument, handmade signs with slogans such as God created man and woman do not really make it understood. Fascinating to me that those who oppose, those who oppose an educational move to provide support and on the topic of sexual orientation and gender identity are saying to people of faith, I don't understand your core argument. Like your sign is mysterious and opaque to me. What in the world does your belief that God created man and woman have to do with anything in this conversation 
about sexual expression, gender identity, and gender expression. And when I read the editorial, I paused and I thought, you know, maybe as Christians, we think we're doing a great job at communicating to a culture what we think it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, to be created as sexual beings with gendered identities and gendered expressions. But for whatever reason, that message is not getting clearly, articulately received and responded to in our culture. And part of this is that we just need to identify that we live in a confusing time where absolutely everything about this conversation is up for debate and discussion in a way that not everyone is comfortable with. Our kids, our schools are having conversations most of us are not well equipped to have because we just never had these conversations in our experiences. I mean, I never remember a conversation on what is gender growing up. What if the sex I was assigned at birth doesn't match with how I feel? I never gave those questions any thought. My parents, my teachers never gave them any thought. They never brought them up for discussion if they did. But the question of identity, the question of how we express identity is very real. And it's a very vibrant conversation in our world today and in our culture today. And so I think that's a gift to the church that we need to think carefully about because really some of our core mission is our core business is an identity-oriented business. We are about helping people understand their identity in Christ. And so I'm not interested as a pastor in having a bunch of sort of peripheral conversations with people, but if someone wants to talk about their identity, I would love to engage in a helpful, constructive dialogue about that. And so we can see this as an opportunity or we can see it as a threat and just make some more signs and hope we get it clearer for people. So over the course of the next few weeks at Jericho, we're going to work through some of this topic together and some of the implications of this topic. And we're going to work to understand some of our lived convictions uh, as people of faith. So today we're going to look at the question of gender and identity and focus our discussion on masculinity. And then next week, I'm going to be up uh, with a group at Camp Bob and for our work weekend. And Pastor Mike's going to look at the question of gender and identity and same gender attraction and homosexuality. And then the week after that, uh, we're going to finish off our series in the Song of Songs with a look at gender and femininity or the notion of a biblical womanhood. What does that mean? What do people think that it means? So you're going to want to stick around for the next three weeks. You're going to want to catch up online if you miss or with, at the podcast uh, if you miss some of these conversations. And I want to just say as we dive into these topics, these are complex and challenging topics. So I don't want you to think that oh, come with the expectation that in a 35 to 40 minute message, you're going to get all the answers you've ever had to any of these kinds of questions. We're going to put things on the table for discussion. 
Uh, we're going to also then put together as we come uh, into this a reading list for you that you say, if this is something you want to dig deeper into, then we'll provide you some resources and say, here's some helpful uh, podcasts or some helpful books that uh, people have read. And so maybe I would say if you've read something or come across something as an individual that's been helpful for you in these discussions, just email it to me. And uh, my email's right there in the info sheet. And would love to uh, have further conversation and help be a resourcing uh, for other individuals. What we do want to do in our times together on Sunday morning is just orient ourselves around God's written word to us, the scriptures, and um, see what the scriptures have to teach us about the topic of gender and faith and life. So, deep breath. You guys ready for this? Some of you look nervous. You're gonna, it's going to be okay. And we're going to dive in together. So the first thing that we have to think about when we're talking about gender is a question that often gets phrased as, like, what does that actually mean? Or another way it would more often get phrased is, like, what makes a real man, if we're talking about masculinity today? What's a definition in your head that you have of a real man, and then you fill in the blanks? And then the question is, where did you get that definition from? What has informed that definition? Because each of us has been handed a script, an identity script, and it defines and gives us uh, the way in which we live out our identities. Some of us got handed a script that said male on it. And in our culture, our family of origin, uh, our experiences all help shape and define what it means and what that means to us as a person, as an individual. So I grew up in a small town in northern BC. It was a farming community. And I would say that the definition of a real man was defined by old-time country songs. Like that is, if you were a real man, you drove a truck. That would be number one. You probably worked with your hands. You could fix things. You loved hunting and fishing every day. That kind of stuff. And so that was uh, the definition in that subculture of what masculinity was. And then I moved across the country when I turned 13 with my family. We lived in suburban Toronto. And there I got a very different picture or definition of what quote-unquote real men did. In Toronto, real men wore suits. They went to office towers. They worked with their minds, not with their hands. And they were providers, sometimes long hours for commutes so that their families could have resources. Real men, I was told once, were Toronto Maple Leafs fans. And I never bought into that at all. I never became a member of Leaf Nation. But then when you travel to other places of the world, you realize that each culture and subculture has its own way of defining what it means to be a real man. In Tanzania, for example, when we go there, and Peter just got back from there a couple of weeks ago, real men hold hands with other men as they walk down the street, and public displays of affection between men is considered quite masculine. If you think about uh, the Auka tribe, where Elizabeth Elliot worked as a missionary, she writes about the fact that in Ecuadorian culture, real men write poetry, and real men are dedicated to the decorative art of beadwork, not the definition that we might aspire to. 
here in North America. And so we just have to recognize that part of our confusion today around the question of masculinity and what it means to be male is that there's just a lot of competing and very often contradictory ways in which that script gets written. And we have to tease apart, and it's hard work, to figure out how much of that is culture and how much of that goes beyond culture or lies underneath culture. So when a person at a rally holds up a sign that says, God created man and woman, it's not mysterious to me that our culture looks at that and goes, so? Or looks at that sign and says, I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. We're in a series here at Jericho uh, looking at the book, The Song of Solomon, or The Song of Songs. And this book is a collection of ancient Hebrew love poetry. It's written between a man and a woman as they express their love for each other. And so we actually begin to learn things about how they viewed each other and how they viewed and defined what masculinity and what gender meant in that culture. And so one of the things that begins to emerge, and Pastor Wally pointed this out when he talked about marriage, is that Song of Solomon and the language of it, when you read it, it should immediately evoke in you another part of the Old Testament, that being Genesis chapter 1 to 3. It has very, very similar cadence, rhythm, language, intonations. And so they're kind of joined in some way. And the genuineness of love expressed between the man and the woman in the song all sounds a little bit like the, some of the conversations um, that uh, first man and first woman had walking in the garden in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So turn there in your Bibles or on your device, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. This is one of the accounts of the work of creation. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, say to each other, let us, let us as a community make man, make human beings in our image. They will be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that's the sign, right? Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So we actually learn here a few key things about gender and about masculinity and about the image of God, and what it means to be made in the image of God. So let's look at the first thing that we learn here. And the first thing is, is simply that gender, when it comes to gender, maleness and femaleness, that this was God's idea. This was actually not something that is a cultural, just strictly a cultural construct. And I think that's what the sign holder was trying to communicate at the protest, that our maleness and our femaleness are not simply cultural inventions or constructs. Many of the ways in which gender gets expressed or lived out is a product of our culture and varies widely from culture to culture and era to era. But the core concept of humanity as gendered beings is not something that humanity came up with. 
gender was God's idea. Maleness and femaleness at an anatomical, biological, genetic, genital kind of way, this was part of God's creation. I bet you didn't think you'd hear the words genitals in church ever, did you? This is why whenever gender is mentioned in the Bible, it's always linked back into the creation story. So someone comes and asks Jesus a question in Matthew chapter 19. And, and Jesus says, oh, we're going to talk about relationships, male and female. Yeah, that's actually, um, I'm going to take you right back to the start. Male and female, God created. And so one thing we have to remember here when we're having a conversation about gender and Genesis chapter 1 in particular and chapter 2, this is a description of God's created order and intention before the fall. Once sin enters our world, all kinds of things become less than perfect expressions of God's original intention. But to argue from exceptions isn't foundationally helpful. And there's something actually quite tragic about the fact that on this side of eternity, we will never know and experience fully the beauty and perfection of what God designed for our gendered expression. Have you ever tried looking at a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy? Like every generation that you photocopy gets blurrier and blurrier until it's just, it's distorted in a way, and it's fuzzy, and you can't quite make out all of the ways in which the original was as it was intended. It gets fuzzy. And that's what we're really dealing with when we step back and we're talking about a conversation on gender. But that original creation, maleness and femaleness, was God's idea. So we learn this in Genesis chapter 1. The second thing that we learn here is that as we live out what it means to be a gendered being, how we live that out is actually a reflection of the image of God. Because God actually doesn't just imprint his image onto us as human beings then he gives us instructions as to what it means or how we go about living that out. And the first thing that God says is that he blesses them. He blesses them in their maleness and in their femaleness. And then he says, okay, I've blessed you. Now I have, I have jobs and tasks for you to do. You're to be co-stewards, co-regents of the created world for the good of the world and the glory of God. You're to actually function with a level of authority, a level of understanding what it is that I've entrusted to you, including your own body and gender. And then you're to be fruitful and multiply as the other instruction. They are to enjoy sexuality and procreation. And in all of these things... God's blessing is, is still present, even post-fall. And we're going to live this out. We're going to reflect the image of God differently as gendered beings, as men and as women. There's unique ways in which men are going to live out this instruction. 
to actually be a co-regent and a steward with God. And there's unique ways that women do this. And so one of the things that we have to wrestle with is that no gender does this completely or perfectly. No one gender, male or female, perfectly expresses and fully expresses the image of God. In the creation narrative, after everything God makes, he says, this is good. Yes, this is good. This is good. This is good. He creates, he creates, he creates. It's good, it's good, it's good. And the first time we come to a place where God says this is not good is Genesis 2, chapter 18. He's created just one gender, Adam. And he says, this is not good. It's not good because it doesn't fully express my image. God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit that exists in community. And so God looks at just a single gender and says, that is, there's a loneliness, there's a non-fullness of expression of my image. And so God says, Maleness by itself does not fully express the image of God. And a lot could be said about that, but it's sufficient to say that one of the reasons for this not goodness is that as human beings, we were created for community with other human beings. So maleness will not do without femaleness. One aspect of being made in the image of God is that we need each other. Men need and need to respect and understand the gifts that women have to offer, and women also need to understand and respect the gifts that men have to offer. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. You guys always love it when I tell you that. Last week, we talked about singleness. So I want to just reiterate, if you haven't listened to that message, it is not true that you are not a whole person then if you are a single person. What is true is that even as a single person, you need cross-gender discipleship experiences. There are things that you need to learn from the other gender that you will not learn just exclusively from people of the same gender. As a man, I have come to know and learn and understand things about the character and the nature of God, God's heart, God's purpose, the way in which God works in the world uh, from women in my life that I would have never discovered or figured out on my own. And ladies, men express some of the unique aspects of God's character that are helpful and that the world needs. So relationships across genders is something that helps us because it helps us avoid a couple of pitfalls. One pitfall on the one side is becoming over-gender typed which is where we, we have these stereotypes that all men are macho, they bench press things, they like mixed martial arts, you know, whatever it is that you have in your mind as a stereotype. Or on the other side, we become uh, under-gender typed. So we have men who, uh, uh, who are so passive and weak, they don't want to offend anyone else at any costs, and they're, they're, um, they're, there's, there's two pitfalls that we want to avoid there. And when we need each other, when we come to learn things about the world and about what it means to reflect the image of God from the other gender, this is a helpful way that we grow in our discipleship and a helpful way in which we learn more fully to fulfill the things that God has invited us into as gendered human beings. 
So that's, that's just a few things from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then let's turn our attention to the song, Song of Songs, because we learn things about gender in this unique book. We learn two uh, more things. And if you've read through the Song of Songs, which we asked you to do, one of the things that strikes me is actually how much time they spend um, and how much real estate of the Bible is given to the physical descriptions that these lovers have for each other. They go on and on and on about the, the gendered characteristics of the other person. Look, for example, at chapter 2 of Song of Songs. The, the young woman, she describes the young man in all kinds of flowery language. She, she says, he's an apple tree and she wants to sit in his shade. He's like a gazelle. He's like a young stag. He's like a cluster of flowers, henna flowers. And then in chapter 5, she goes on for a really long time about he's radiant. His hair is black. His mouth is like jewels. His arms are like big bands of gold. And on and on and on. And like most of the song is taken up with their physical descriptions of each other. And so if you look at just those parts, yes, we've talked a few times about how these are weird metaphors for us. We don't often use those types of language to describe or uh, our significant others or people of the other gender. But I don't want you to conclude that their attraction to each other then is strictly based on physical appearance. Because we learn as we read through the song that gender is not solely about physiology. Yes, it's true that in the song, the young woman spends a lot of time describing and praising the young woman's looks and vice versa. They, they do spend a lot of time on that. And what's funny about this is if you and artists have done this, if you take just 100% literally what they say and you try to draw a picture of that, it's a horrifically grotesque and defigured human being. Her eyes are like doves, right? You see the little birds. Her hair is like a flock of goats. Teeth are like ewes, like sheep. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. This is all chapter 4. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like a tower of David. Your breasts are like two fawn gazelle. Like, this is just not the language that we use to kind of try and attract people to us, right? So they focus a lot on this language and describing and enjoying each other's created, gendered body. And as Protestants, we're not real good with the theology of the body. The Catholic Church has, has done a lot more work than we have on this. And in fact, uh, the Pope spent about, Pope John Paul spent about five years, gave a weekly address at St. Peter's, and every week for five years, he talked about the theology of the body. And it came to be this massive uh, body of work that the church, Catholic Church has had in its repository of teaching for a couple of decades now. And so they have a very strong theology of the human body. And many times, uh, Pope John Paul referenced Song of Solomon, and he went pretty hard at biblical literism, saying, if you want a woman, this is what it looks like. Uh, we are not sure that that's what this is intended to be. But what's the other, the, the thing that we need to dig at beneath this is that once you read through, they valued more than just the physical relationship in each other. 
when the young man speaks about the young woman, he doesn't just speak about her physical characteristics. He approaches her as a companion, a friend, and associate. He uses words like beloved. And this is not solely a term of sexuality or sexual endearment. Remember, and we're going to talk about this in two weeks when we talk about uh, the femininity and the relationship between men and women. I've got friend Erin coming, and she's going to help us uh, with some of our conversation. But remember that the author of this is a king or a prince. He has a very high station in life. We've talked about the royal language that's all over this. And so there's a massive power differential in their relationship because the young woman we see in chapter 2, she's a working woman. She has to go out and tend for in the fields with her father's flocks. And so it would be very easy in that culture or in ours with that great of a power differential to simply use and abuse this young woman for her body and then discard it there. And we've seen tragically so many examples of that coming to light in our culture. But the young man, every time he speaks about her, he approaches her with tenderness, with respect and compassion, and it is not simply about her body. David Kinlaw, one of the commentators on this, says, the reason for this is that normal people find the erotic only meaningful, ultimately, if there's trust and commitment present. If they delight in the other's person, as well as not just exclusively in their body. And so the writer of the song understands this. Our hero, yes, is a lover, but he's more than that. He's a friend and one who treats her with respect. And so, lest it be unclear, real men respect women. That would be a time for an amen, by the way. <laughs> One of the most intriguing things that we see, actually, in this relationship is the metaphor of the banquet table that they both share and enjoy together as lovers and as friends. And this is the only part of the Song of Songs that's picked up in another refrain in Scripture. It's actually picked up in Revelation and is used as a picture for the banquet feast of eternity in heaven. The beauty and the mystery of a loving, honest relationship between two genders, the man and the woman, is the primary image that God uses in Scripture to describe his relationship with the church, with the people of God. He is the husband, and the church, the people of God, including the guys, play the part of the bride. It's a beautiful picture based not on physiology, but on divine love. And if gender is God's idea, how we express it and reflect God's image in our maleness or femaleness is not just about physiology. Fourthly, we see here that gender can also not solely be about roles. And see, a lot of the time when we're talking in our culture about gender, we're actually really talking about gender roles. We're talking about things like, well, this is a blue job, meaning guy does that, or this is a pink job, meaning a woman does that. It's more of a division of labor conversation, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But we have to remind ourselves that gender is not strictly about roles or functions. Gender is much deeper than that. 
It's not simply as book titles make out glibly to be, oh well, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, they're just, the other gender is just different, which is true. But a lot of those books even talk about role differential, even some Christian marriage books. That's the sum total of the advice that they have is, you should play this role. Husband, you should play this role. Wife, you should play this role. But one of the interesting things, and I'm indebted in my thinking here to Kathy Keller, and she wrote a book with her husband, Tim Keller, called The Meaning of Marriage. And one of the things that they go quite hard at is the notion that the Bible gives almost no airtime to the questions that we often argue and fight about. The Bible doesn't talk about things like, should men help with the laundry? Should women take care of the kids while men <clears throat> do the finances? Should wives work outside of the home? The Bible's quite quiet on specifics related to gender roles when it comes to specific tasks. But this has not stopped some people from making the Bible into a tool of subjugation and abuse. But from a biblical standpoint, rigid cultural gender roles, like tasks, have no biblical warrant. The, sim the Bible simply lays out Genesis 1:27. We are like opposites. There's areas where we're alike, and there's areas where we're opposite. In the song of songs, we see the young man is a gentle initiator, but never in a way that violates the personhood of the woman. There's a strong sense of mutuality. The young man in a Song of Songs talks about the gifts that he wants to provide for his beloved, but he never does that in a way that assumes economic or power superiority. He wants to give her jewels that match her beauty. He doesn't want to give these to her as a trophy or as a conquest in any way. And so sometimes when we reduce the conversation on gender to strictly talking about roles or role relationships, when we make broad statements like, well, all men are unemotional or all women are illogical or we're falling in here to stereotypes. And we need to be careful because role-driven stereotypes can actually be expressions of unbalanced or unredeemed masculinity or femininity. In other words, stereotypes take a healthy, helpful aspect of gender and push it to an extreme. So there's something helpful, I think, here that we ought to be paying attention to and learning and listening for from those in our culture who are pushing back against some of the categories that have long existed in North America. We need to agree with some of the things that are being said. For example, here at Jericho, women can be pastors, women can teach at seminaries, men can change diapers and be house husbands, and you can still be a real man or a real woman. You don't have to sacrifice your masculinity or your femininity in order to live into your God-given calling. We have to be careful about what is typing and stereotyping. And so as we move towards reflection and response, I want to highlight two things for us. And the first one is just, again, going back to the protests and the sign. Like, could I just encourage you in this area of your life, have real conversations, not easy slogans. Have real conversations, not easy slogans. 
because sloganeering is kind of cheap and easy. A quick retweet of something, a subtle jab, or a comment. You know, we love reductionism as human beings to take complicated things and make them quite simple, because then we can use that in conversations. And sometimes that's helpful. But often, what people hear is simply the soundbite or the slogan, and they can't get past that. And then we can't actually have a meaningful conversation. And they fail to grasp anything beyond that. I think that's what happened for that editor who wrote that piece. They looked at it and said, I don't grasp what you're talking about beyond your slogan. We need to do better than that. We need to have real conversations. And yes, this is hard work. Part of the hard work in this category is actually holding space for people that you disagree with. It's going to mean not going on the offensive and being reactionary when someone comes at you and labels you and boxes you in a corner and says something to you like, oh, you're a Christian, you're one of those bigots, aren't you? You doesn't mean you don't respond. It does mean that you need to be careful in how you respond. And one of the things I would say here is you need to be careful and think carefully and clearly about what is the kind of conversation that you are having with this person. Because what happened with the sign was that that person was having a theological conversation. God made man and woman. No one else understood that they were having a theological conversation. They thought they were having a conversation about justice, about culture, about experience, any number of other things. And so make sure you're clear when you're getting into conversations with people what type of conversation it is that you are having. This is one of the key areas where we need to think about, are there areas that we as Christians could agree and affirm with people that we're in conversation with around, for example, the SOGI123 resourcing. And I can tell you, I've read every single page on the SOGI123 website, and there's stuff on there that I go, I agree with that. There's stuff on there that I don't agree with. I've met with the district principal who oversees safe schools and said, help me understand know your, your your intentions and designs and how this is going to be worked itself out in the curriculum you know as parents what should we be thinking about like just help us understand mike and i had a very productive listening conversation uh, with that i met with the former minister of education when this happened and asked him so you're in the room tell me what was the intention of the group putting this together It'd be helpful for me to understand and us to understand that I met with the head of the Parents for Inclusion group. And what I found time after time after time after again was we were having different conversations. And their understanding of conversations that religious people were having was getting tainted by some of the sloganeering and people standing up in public meetings and saying really stupid things. And so we need to figure out Sometimes we really want to have theological conversations, but when we, when we start into those conversations, people go, whoa, 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 I'm not there with you. I don't share some of your presuppositions, like the whole God-made thing. I'm not there. So let's talk about that first. Like there's actually two statements on that sign, on that slogan. They're both massive to unpack, but it's just a slogan, and so it got lost. 
in that. And sometimes a church wanting to have a conversation about things gets interpreted as a colonial desire to impose religious beliefs on those who don't want them in a pluralistic society. Whether that's what we intend or not, oftentimes that's how it comes across. And so Jericho, let's be among those Christians who are slow to speak and quick to listen. Let's also be among those who are slow to go to protests, I would probably suggest, because we can get wrapped up in stuff that may not be uh, what we want to be associated with. There may be times when we need to stand for convictions, and we need to do that in the public sphere. But when we reduce it to slogans and signage, it gets a little bit complicated and tricky. And we don't like it as Christians when people do that to us. And so be careful when you're in conversation with people about doing it to other people. So the second thing about responding is when we're facing something that has a high degree of complexity to it, a good posture is just to practice humility. Keep learning. Keep asking good questions. Keep trying to understand. Because if I was to ask for a show of hands, and I'm just to be clear, I'm not going to do this. Who among you has experienced brokenness in the area of human sexuality? Who's, temp who's been tempted and fallen into sexual sin? Who's been victimized? Who's watched pornography? Who's objectified another person? Who's experienced shame and guilt in the area of our sexual lives? I would suspect that almost every hand would go up. And so let's not kid ourselves that the conversations around human sexuality are simple matters. They are complicated matters. And they've touched our lives as human beings as well. And so when someone, for example, is questioning their gender and when we're faced with complexity, let's practice humility. Yes, we have conviction, but let's also remember that all of us have elements of our identities and also our sexuality that has been tainted by sin. And so we need to own up to our own brokenness. And if sin hasn't tainted this particular area of your life, all of us are sinners. And so let's be very, very careful about going around and helping other people, yanking logs and specks out of their eyes when we have planks and tree trunks in our own. We need to practice both grace and truth truth, and grace. And so when we think about brokenness, the response that we're invited into is repentance. When we think about places where we have sinned or are sinning, the Scripture calls us back to be the ones to say, God, I recognize that in this area of my life, whatever area that is, whether it's finances, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your sexuality, whether it's identity, Come face to face with your own brokenness and say, God, I need you in this area. I need you to be the one that shapes and defines who I am. And I want to say that if you're a person who identifies as lesbian or gay or transgender or bisexual or questioning, that's what that acronym LGTBQ stands for, you may have experienced incredible woundedness 
at the hands of a church or at the hands of a friend who did so in the name of religion. And so I don't get to speak for all Christians. I never pretend to do that. I don't even pretend to speak for all of Jericho Ridge. But if that's you, I want you to hear that I'm so deeply sorry. That that was done in the name of Christ is tragic. And I want you to forgive us. And you may still have bitterness and hatred in your heart, and you're going to need to deal with that and release that to the Lord. But don't let that ruin the possibility of walking with us as a community. And church, I got to say, this is hard work. Like this conversation on gender is not like a, oh, okay, well, we'll talk about it for a few weeks and then we're done kind of conversation. We have an individual who's a part of our community and they are at a place right now where they do not identify as either male or female. They're non-binary and they prefer to be called they, not he or she. And so as a person who participates in this community, I need you to treat them with respect and dignity. I want you to love them. I want you to make sure that you treat them as a part of our community. And I want you to keep in mind as you interact with people in your workplace, in your school, like you don't know the journey of gender that they are on or have been on. And so I want you to walk with respect as a community of people. And I want you to walk with humility. I want us to help each other learn to love and live well. And again, this does not mean that we don't have convictions that anchor some of our practices as a community. But it does mean that we're a community who when we say we, one of our core values is that we value authenticity, we should expect that people are going to bring their whole selves into this community and that that's going to get messy and complicated at times. And it's going to be complex. And we're going to have to stick with it. And we're going to have to work at it. And we're going to have to pray lots, love lots. We're going to have to repent lots because we're going to get it wrong a lot of the time when we say something stupid. But that's just part of living together in community. And so I'm going to invite Ron and the team, and they're going to come up, and they're going to lead us in two songs that really just express simply a desire for repentance. And our prayer team's available at the sides and at the back. And if you want to spend time in your seat uh, repenting, maybe you need to repent of an attitude that you've held towards people who are different than you. Take some time. Ask God to search your heart. Maybe you're a parent. And as this whole conversation has been coming to the forefront in our culture, you just realize, I am gripped by fear. I have no idea how to handle this conversation at all. Maybe you just need to come and we'll pray for wisdom and for guidance for you. Maybe you're a teacher, an administrator in the school, and you say, I just need wisdom to how to lead well in the times in which we live. So we want to pray for you. Friends, all of us are in need of the mercy that's offered to us at the cross. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you don't leave us alone by ourselves to deal with complexity, to deal with challenge. 
you don't um, just if we are, have questions and if we fall in different areas of our lives just kick us out and say I'm done with you you invite us to come to the cross again where we find our truest selves who you have created us to be a son of God a daughter of God one who is loved who is known one who desires to submit our identities our gender to what it is that you have for us and so Jesus we're grateful that you strengthen and empower us in this journey we need you at this time in our culture in our life to have productive healthy life-giving Jesus-focused conversations and we just confess we're not great at it so would you help us strengthen us in the strong name of Jesus we pray amen you can stand or sit as you like as we respond to God in worship and again our prayer teams are available at the side and at the back